0: Please note that the following podcast includes discussions of crimes and violence. It may contain graphic descriptions that could be disturbing to some listeners. The show also features talk about the consumption of cannabis, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody, it's Lania with Getting High with True Crime again this week for episode 35. Um, I just wanted to play uh the little blurb uh from Michael and Jeremy Steele your podcast. Um, just because we recorded an episode with them and it should be coming out uh this coming Monday. So same day you would be listening to this one. So yeah, if you haven't um checked out their podcast as of yet, it's a great way to uh find new podcasts that you might be interested in in a very interesting and odd way. So uh, with uh, wow, my brain just died, <laughs> it just totally died, anyways. Yeah, so with that, um, here's a little bit about their podcast. Ah, Why are you always making uh, me climb in the smallest of places? Well, this is the best way to get to the podcast that we need to steal this week, it's always like we face. do every week on Mondays, Mondays, every Monday, yeah, religiously. I just, sometimes I wish we could just walk through the door, but yeah. Every Monday, on where where do they find it? So, yeah, Jeremy, on Spotify, Apple, any, anywhere yeah. you can find podcasts. That's Sorry, where we they, are. I get so hot in these vents I think they have the heater on. Uh, Jack, wait, wait, oh, Jeremy, don't move. Oh, wait. Michael and Jeremy steal your podcast every Monday, wherever you lead, get your podcasts and stuff. We're going to take your podcast and we're going to do it better. Faster. Stronger. Hornier. Yes. In an hour. Or more. (laughs) Sometimes. me again. I'm back. Um, so yeah, that uh, is Michael and Jeremy Steele, your podcast. Um, it's a very interesting little uh, thing. So there's that. <laughs> um, what else am I thinking of today? Today I am recording alone. Um, I did have a fill-in this week, but uh, she was uh, unable to uh, fill in uh a little bit she I mean I don't blame her tis the season fall gives me worse migraines on the planet so that's what she had so we had to reschedule so another time uh I will have Amanda on the show uh and Melissa doesn't get back till tomorrow so I am recording this by myself which is fine I don't mind doing it I'm just I feel more awkward when I do this by myself (laughs) Anyways, so, uh, I didn't even name this episode now that I'm looking at my notes. We have, (coughs) excuse me, episode 35, Getting High with True Crime. Uh, and this one, uh, it's kind of one of those ones where you, um, you learn that somebody learns that somebody they care about did some really horrible things. So, there's that. So, with that, let's get started. So, this case takes place in Jefferson County in the States. Uh, a young couple, 19 years old, Tim Hack and Kelly Drew, are attending a wedding reception at the Concord House. Tim and Kelly are high school sweethearts. Tim enjoyed tractor pulls and, well, Kelly worked at both the local hair salon as well as the local Dairy Queen. So, with that, then, now I want ice cream cone. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so later that evening, the couple leave the wedding reception together, but neither of them make it home that night. Normally, if Tim wasn't going to be home, he would inform his family so they wouldn't worry about him. Um, but none of his family did receive a call or any information as to him being elsewhere otherwise. Um, so the next morning, Tim's father was quite concerned. So he went to the Concord house to see if Tim was there. Maybe it had car trouble and um when he arrived at the venue he found Tim's car was still there. Um but Tim's keys and wallet were still in the car next to the gear shift, so right out in plain sight. But I mean this was a different time. This is uh quite a while ago. I forgot to put the year. Um I do believe I say it later on, so we'll get to that at some point. Um so Tim's dad started the car which led him to believe there was absolutely no issues with the car, so That wasn't the problem or why Tim was missing. So Tim's dad, now gravely concerned, phoned the police and reported Tim as missing. So police quickly began searching for the missing couple. They even ran through the wedding guest list to see who may have seen them and when the night before. So this is the night of August 9th, 9th, 1980. So I wasn't even a twinkling in anyone's eye yet. Um, So every possible lead was followed. It was five days later, approximately three miles away from Concord House, that the clothes of Kelly Drew were discovered scattered along the side of a country road. Police even found her underwear, so the clothes appeared to have been cut off of Kelly, so there was obvious cut marks through them. Pieces of rope were also found scattered along the same road, and police were now concerned that there may be a sexual violence involved with this case. Uh, Police used all available resources in the ground search for the couple. Um, Some of that included dogs, horseback riders, fire department, and I believe they even utilized uh, helicopters in the search. Two months later, a couple of hunters out hunting squirrels came upon a disturbing scene. They uh, They discovered what was left of a female body. The next day, a second body is discovered only 70 feet away, so 70 feet away from the first body. The police were able to identify the bodies, and the bodies belonged to that of Tim Hack and Kelly Drew. So the coroner determined that Kelly had died due to strangulation. They also determined that Tim had died because of a stab wound in the right rib area. But despite all the evidence and all the interviews police did with the wedding guests and others who had known the couple, the case went cold. In 2007, so quite a while later, 27 years later, uh, the case was looked into again. With advancements in DNA technology, police swabbed Kelly's clothes and underwear to see if any DNA was present that was not her own. The lab was able to find DNA, uh, and from that they could also determine what type of DNA it was, and this one it was from semen. So in 2009, police released the DNA findings to the media in hopes it would spark someone's memory and lead to more information about the case. There was a young woman watching the TV that night and she recognized the Concord House. Her name was April Bellagio. She had a great childhood uh, from her memories. Her father had a history of bank robbery and had spent 14 years in prison. Edward Edwards. And I'm not making that up. It was Mr. Edward Edwards um, was his name. He ended up writing a book about his life as a bank robber. uh, And it was a great success. Um, He became a public speaker and despite his criminal past was held in high regard within the public. So eventually, though, as time goes on, his popularity degrades. And soon Edward finds himself working odd jobs all over the place. Eventually, Edward was able to buy his family a small home. He portrays himself as quite the family man and even tries his best to befriend the local police. Edward was a good people person and listener, so he became a valuable resource of information to the police. So Edward uh, was able to provide police information on a fair amount of local crimes that were occurring. Uh, he usually collected this information while he'd be sitting at the bar having a drink, just overhearing conversations of other people. So the police were able to even make some arrests based on the information Ed had provided. So I'm imagining that's not making any friends. <coughs> <coughs> so one night, well, for family movie, uh, family movie night, the Edwards family arrive home only to find their small home on fire. Firefighters were able to determine that it was an attempted arson, so I guess it didn't completely burn down, but there was still significant damage. Ed and his wife took the threat seriously and moved their family. They kept moving from state to state twice a year as they were both worried that some of Ed's information had pissed off the wrong people. April recalled living in Ohio and she remembered her dad getting to help the help of a young man to build the family's second home. But the young man quit showing up eventually, and so Ed sold the house unfinished and packed up the family and moved them to Florida. April also recalled a night when they lived in Wisconsin, where her dad came home looking quite beat up. That night, they packed up a, uh, packed up, and moved as well. So that's a little weird. So from there, they moved to Pennsylvania. In 1982, the family is living in Pennsylvania, and things are seeming to be okay. But on a night, while Mr. Ed, uh, Mrs. Edwards sorry, is at the hospital and Ed takes their kids camping, their family home burns down again. It turns out to be arson. Again. So the difference this time is that the perpetrators come to the police and confess. It turns out that Edwards and some of his sons had set fire to the house to claim the insurance money so that they could afford to, to move again. And Edwards uh, is arrested and spent time in prison. Uh, April no longer trusts her father and got a job and moves out as soon as she could. So, as you probably would if you could. So, in 1987, Ed, now released from prison, focuses his time to being a devoted dad to the remaining children that are still living at home. Even getting heavily involved with the remaining children's school activities. So, he's trying Ed also takes in a foster kid by the name of Danny who went to school with the Edwards children and the two form a strong father son like bond. Through the courts or should I say though the courts said Danny was too old to be adopted by Ed they did allow Danny to change his name to Danny boy Edwards. So almost like he's adopted he's just taking Ed's last name. So, Danny graduates high school and joins the military after Ed suggested it as a good path for him. Unfortunately, before he can be stationed in Korea, Danny injures his ankle in such a way that he is going to be medically discharged from the military. A couple days before the discharge was to take place, Danny goes missing. And for a year, there are no signs of the young man anywhere. Not until one day, a couple of hunters, discovered the badly decomposed body of a man behind a local cemetery. Due to the state of decomposition, the coroner takes about a week before finally being able to identify the body as that of Danny Boy Edwards. The coroner also rules that the cause of death was a shotgun blast to the back of Danny's head. Ed, upon learning of the discovery, becomes distraught, obsessing over the young man's death. The Edwards children, after a family get-together, now grown adults, stumble uh, on conversation regarding the death of Danny. Somehow, this segues to the conversation about their mother's hospital stay in 1982. Through this conversation, they realize that their father, Ed, had stabbed their mother, and that is actually why she was in the hospital that night. The kids start to wonder if their father was more of a monster than a man on the run because he had snitched to the cops. April begins to deep dive into her childhood, researching all the locations of places they had moved from and to, trying to see if there were any unsolved crimes or cold cases that correlated with these times they had lived there. She turned up nothing. So in 2009, April comes across the article about Wisconsin putting some money forward to reopen five cold cases in hopes of finding the killers. One of those cases was that of the murder of Tim Hack and Kelly Drew. April learned more about them, and suddenly she remembers the Concord House. They had lived not too far from it when the murders had occurred, and it turns out that Ed had been the handyman at the Concord House, and April remembered that night of the murders was the night of her dad had come home looking beat up. He had told them that he had gotten into a fight, but later, as police questioned everyone about Tim and Kelly, Ed had told detectives that his injuries were from hunting and the gun recoil hitting him in the face. The family ended up doing what we call a midnight move. Uh, So they moved in the middle of the night without letting anyone know. So Ed became obsessed with the murders of Tim and Kelly. So like you see that sometimes where the killer will actually get involved in the police or try and, you know, be more involved with the case. Sometimes just as a sense of pride. Sometimes it's to, you know, kind of maybe helps sway the investigation away from them but sometimes it happens so upon unlocking these memories april contacts police saying that she believes her father may have been the one to kill tim and kelly so detective garcia who is now the detective on this case looks into it and learns that ed had been interviewed in 1980 regarding the murders ed had claimed he wasn't at the concord house that night It was noted during, uh, the interview that Ed had a black eye and broken nose. So it was also noted that Ed claimed the injuries had occurred while hunting. Uh, so detective Garcia tracks down Ed and begins to interview the now 70 plus year old man. Ed recalled the Concord house, but could not seem to recall Tim or Kelly. He claimed to be unfamiliar with their names. Detective Garcia questioned Ed about his injured uh, nose while in Wisconsin and Ed replied he didn't think he had done that. Uh, When asked if he had ever done any hunting while in Wisconsin Ed also replied with a definitive "Uh uh-uh no. So according to Ed now he's never hunted in Wisconsin but yet back in 1980 that night when he was interviewed by police he told them oh yeah this this whole shaboozle with my face is because i was hunting deer and an idiot and the gun hit me in the face so detective garcia then asked ed for a sample of his dna to which ed refused a sample he's like hell no not doing that that was when detective garcia produced a search warrant for ed's dna detective garcia came prepared (laughs) so ed then reluctantly let garcia take the dna sample all the while explaining how he was really not a fan of doing this that sample proved to be a match to the semen found on kelly's underwear ed was then arrested for the murders of tim and kelly and extradited from kentucky back to wisconsin for prosecution so normally this is where you guys would all be like oh yeah okay so now we have a solution everything's good hunky dork no it gets weirder we're not done not even close so Ed is facing life in prison in Wisconsin, but due to his ailing health, he wants the death penalty. He doesn't want to sit there and suffer in prison and, you know, heaven forbid, actually a toll for his sins, um, atone, sorry, atone for his sins. Um, so he's wanting the death penalty, but Wisconsin didn't have a death penalty. So he wrote a letter to authorities in Ohio, which did have the death penalty, telling him he had a bunch to say to them and once they heard what he had to say they would want to give him the lethal injection. So Ohio detectives come and talk to Ed. He tells them about how in 1977 in Doylestown, Ohio, he how he used to work on odd jobs with a young man named Billy. Ed did not like how he saw Billy playing with his kids, especially his daughter April. So he threatened Billy with potential violence if Billy kept it up. Billy didn't take it seriously as he didn't see what he was doing was wrong in any way. So to explain further, he was literally like playing tag with the kids, just playing like how you would play with your nieces and nephews. Like it was not sexually motivated or grooming in any way. It was just playing with kids. Uh, So yeah. Uh, despite this, Ed began, still began to believe that Ed uh, Billy was molesting April. So he decides to get revenge. One night, he follows Billy and Billy's girlfriend, uh, Judith, when they leave a local bar. The couple head to the local lover's lane and begin to make out as you would. So Ed approaches Billy's car with an armed shotgun. He knocks on the window and tells Judith to stay in the car. Because Judith has no idea who he is. So he's not concerned with her. He told Billy to get out of the car. Because he had to talk to him. Judith gets out too. And Billy addressed Ed by name. Calling him Wayne. Like what are you doing? Wayne happens to be Ed's middle name. So it's Edward Wayne Edwards. At least it's not like Edward. Eddie Edwards. Or something silly. Um, So... <clears throat> Um, yeah, he, so Billy addressed Ed by his name, telling him to take money from Judith's purse and to leave. Ed shoots Billy, then turns the gun on Judith and kills her too, because now she knew his name. So he had no intent on killing Judith, but unfortunately, wrong place, wrong time. So police don't believe Ed's accusations against Billy had any truth, but this confession didn't work out um the way he had intended back when these murders occurred Ohio didn't actually have the death penalty that didn't come into place till later um so um so even though it was in place now he couldn't be given the death penalty as it wasn't in place back when he actually committed the crime which is so weird but okay whatever If that makes sense. So he was now looking at four life sentences. So he's confessed to four murders, hoping for the death penalty. None of that happens. So Ed then confesses to shooting and killing his foster son, Danny. So while Danny was in the military, he had an insurance plan. And Ed was uh, able to convince Danny to sign up for the maximum benefits the plan offered. According to Ed... Um, when Danny became injured and was going to take, uh, to be medically discharged, that would leave him with the insurance money. Oh, he wouldn't be getting the insurance money cause he wouldn't be with the military anymore. Therefore not getting the policy, whatever. So, um, so, uh, he can, uh, Ed convinced Danny to go AWOL two days before he was supposed to get discharged. Um, he then lured Danny to a secluded cemetery, and Danny had a bag, so he was packed and ready to be wall for a while. So he had clothes, cigarettes, a few other personal things. Ed asked Danny for a cigarette. So Danny put the bag down, and as he knelt down to retrieve one from the bag for Ed, Ed then pulled out the shotgun he had concealed out from under his coat, and when Danny turned around to look at him, he shot Danny in the chest he ended up receiving $250,000 of insurance money from Danny's policy. So in August of 2010, Edward Edwards is sentenced to the death penalty in exchange for his confessions, but Ed ended up dying from natural causes in 2011 before he get the lethal injection. So only a month before he was scheduled to be executed. So, that is that and it just proves you never truly know who your family are or what they do. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of other cases out there. Um, I do believe the daughter of BTK was a similar situation. She didn't know until much later. I believe she has a book now about it. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, how would you feel if all of a sudden you found out that your your dad was a serial killer? So that would definitely make you question a lot of things in your childhood. <laughs> But anyways, with that, that is the end I have for this episode. It's a shorter one this week because it's just me and there's none of the back and forth high banter and uh, distractions that we normally have. So um, with that, I would like to ask if you guys want to, you know, share your stories, true crime, 420, whatever, you can give us an email at gettinghighwithtruecrime at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Facebook uh, at Getting High with True Crime. If you want to become part of our little group and community, you can get uh, look it up by at Getting High with True Crime podcast. Um, and you can submit stuff there you want to share with the group. It can be funny memes, could be Four Twenty related, true crime related. Just just keep it so we're not going to get shut down by Facebook. Is all I ask. Um, also, we have more of the My Beaver Has Traveled stickers now available. Um, I will put up a new post about those one of these days when I remember. And yes, that's what I've got, guys. Like, Hopefully you guys are all had a, a nice, uh, good Thanksgiving weekend here in Canada. And to the rest around the world, hope you all are doing well and are safe and happy. So with that, I will talk to you later. Bye.